Hi, I'm Joanna Barron. And I'm Leslie Gray. Welcome to the Love and Dividends podcast, where women get smart about money. We'll share interviews and conversations about optimizing your finances, getting started with investing, and building wealth. Our guest this week is Alexa Turner. Alexa is a Toronto family lawyer and an accredited family mediator committed to helping families resolve their disputes respectfully and out of court. She co-founded Resolve Dispute Resolution with her law partner and mom, Victoria Smith. She's committed to assisting her clients separate and divorce with dignity and to ensure that they feel their needs have been met in the process. As a mediator, her philosophy is the same. Alexa guides families through the separation process with support so they can negotiate custom-crafted solutions that meet their family's needs. This week, Alexa gives us a family lawyer's view on personal finances, including the money faux pas she sees millennials couples making. She believes prenups should be a plan for your assets rather than a way to protect your assets so that couples can build wealth together. She tells us about getting in the same book with your partner when it comes to finances, the conflicts when one person saves or spends more money than the other, and the shame that women feel when they do not understand how their finances work, even after many years in a relationship. Enjoy. Welcome back uh, to Love and Dividends. We have uh, on the episode today a very good friend of mine. Alexa Turner, Lex, how are you doing and how are you holding up during pandemic time? Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Um, how am I doing? I think I'm doing as we're all doing. I think we all are managing and not managing simultaneously. <laughs> um, <laughs> in different ways, in different ways. But what a crazy time to be alive, really. No question. No question. But I, I have um, to ask you, Alexa, and by the way, I had to turn off all my Amazon devices. <laughs> it was very stressful. I was yeah. like, oh, God, Alexa's going to go off every time I say her name. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so literally, I, I was story. worried about it. And I still think well, even if I turn it off, she still listens. You know what I mean? Um, but what I'm wondering is I heard some reports that the divorce rate, because you're a family lawyer, which we'll get into, the divorce rate in China skyrocketed after lock lockdown ends. So do you have any inside line on how that situation is going to go down here? So interestingly, I'm extremely, I'm wondering about it. So I've heard about this. Every client I have is like, I'm not alone, right? Like for a while, the divorce rate actually was, or I call it the relationship rate, because so many people mm -hmm. that aren't actually married separate in a really real and significant way. And that's not captured in the divorce rate, obviously, because they're not legally married. We don't have tracings of that in the same way. But in my practice, obviously, I uh, draft separation agreements for people so I can kind of get a sense of what's going on. And I think there was a trend that actually the the divorce rate or relationship rate was actually decreasing. And mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, it's going to increase again. I think we are going to mirror China. I think that people that were once able to cope with going to work every day and having a vibrant social life uh, aren't, right? The, a lot of those coping mechanisms are gone when you're in isolation, especially with your partner. For sure. Oh. Okay, should we should we get oh, we'll into see. the Q&A? We'll yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, we so Alexa, you are yeah. and and we'll properly interview you before this, but um 
You are a collaborative family lawyer. So what does that mean and how is it different from a traditional family lawyer? Right. So I am a lawyer that doesn't go to court. So I am I'm basically a, a solicitor, like a transactional lawyer in mm -hmm. the arena of family law. So um, the collaborative process is actually a, a term of art. It's a, a design process. I think many people are familiar with mediation, which is a process where you attend with a neutral party to help you um, come to the terms of an agreement. The collaborative process is another process option available for families where you each hire your own advocate. So you don't have a neutral uh, in the form of a lawyer. You each have your lawyer, and it's you, but you agree you're not going to go to court. So you agree that all of the issues arising from your separation will be dealt with in a settlement out of court process. And sometimes we bring in um, uh, neutral uh, social workers or financial professionals to help families navigate the conflicts within the emotional dynamics, but also more attuned to you guys, understand their money because lots of people don't. So we bring in experts to help like, what is tax smart? Like there's a gazillion tax advantages actually <laughs> to being separated. Like what are they? And, and many lawyers are actually not trained to be able to give that advice properly. So we make sure we have those kind of people on our team. So that's really the process. You're doing the exact same thing, just out of court, and in a more structured settlement kind of arena. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in your practice as a family lawyer, how important would you say, and you've kind of started to touch on this, a couple's finances are, um, and more speaking in terms of the long-term health of that relationship? So this is such an interesting question because I feel like I see people that earn a ton of money and have nothing. People that don't earn very much and have nothing, people that earn a lot and have a lot, people somewhere down the middle, and people that don't earn a lot and have managed their way to being quite financially healthy. And so I feel like I do get a really odd and almost like creepy glimpse into people's money to the penny, which is such a kind of a unique position to be in. But I also see it at a really snapshot in time. So unlike a financial um, advisor or someone who's kind of working with a family to work them forward, I'm really seeing their financial, their financials in the last kind of year or two years, um, which is kind of an interesting thing. And I think that I see so many different things about how people are doing it right and how people are doing it wrong. And I would say it's also a large source of why people are separating because they disagree about money. They're fighting about money. There's either not enough. Um, or there's a feeling that there's not enough. Um, there is one person quite often is managing it. So there's kind of a distrust at the end of a relationship about that person and how they managed it. If there's a perception that either there isn't enough or we thought there was money here and it's not there, or we earned this much income, how is there only these many assets? Um, and then the very real reality that when you separate, you're taking the exact same amount of income and you're splitting it into two different households, which means your expenses skyrocket. So in terms of the financial well-being, it's massively important to the deals that we're doing every day to make sure that people feel, I don't want to use financially secure because often they actually don't, but they feel like they have a financial plan moving forward. Does that mm. answer your question? Yeah, yeah it does. Do, 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 do you think it's true? Um, they say that financial issues are the leading cause of divorce. Does that Does that ring true? Um, you know, it's definitely up there. I would say levels of betrayal are, are quite high up there too. So 
I, I don't know if I can say it's like the leading cause of divorce, but there's it's a huge part of a, of a, first of all, a relationship, or if it isn't, it should be, <laughs> you know, I think that's a problem in and of itself in a relationship that if you've never talked about money or you've never, you know, one person's kind of just dealt with it. And then all of a sudden at the end of a relationship, just kind of as I described, you're learning about it for the first time that creates conflict in and of itself at the separation time. So even if it wasn't a problem for you during the marriage, it very well may become conflict in separation. And I do think people fight a lot about money in a relationship. I think it is a huge part of why people separate, for sure. Um, okay, so having said that, since you do work with a lot of couples, and I assume couples around our age, millennials, younger, older, what are the sort of major faux pas that you see? And then the second part is, what is a sort of financially healthy start to a relationship generally? I mean, I assume we're all pro prenup write that shit down, um, but in, in general. But also, what do you see are the biggest mistakes and, and blind spots that people have going into a relationship? So that's kind of a two-parter for me, because one is what are the blind spots when they're going in? And another is kind of what do they do during that maybe isn't helpful to them? Um, <laughs> what I see, so to answer your first question, re-prenup, um, you know, am I pro prenup? I mean, half my practice is prenup. So yeah, but I also don't think everyone needs one. And I think that's a very common misconception. Like I get phone calls being like, hi, I have a car, I have a bank account, and I'm getting married, I need a prenup, because my partner has neither. And I'm like, well, like, what do you like, that's like, that, that, that's not worth my fees to protect your car. That's going to depreciate over the marriage anyway. So it's not even in your interest to have a prenup. So I think there's a bit of a misconception that if you have more money, just generally, that you always need a prenup. You don't. If you have a business, if you own property and real estate is kind of what I mean by property, or you have massive family wealth, then of course you need to be doing that. And you need to be doing it in a process that preserves your relationship, that promotes good communication about money with you and your partner. I think there's a lot of people that avoid the money conversation either because they perceive that one person spends and spends and spends or it's they're kind of conflict avoiders by by style. Um, so the one thing I see a lot of is people just saying, I, we just never spoke about it. The one thing I see during a lot is people overspending. I would say that's commonly what I see and it means they have nothing. They just have nothing left. Um, and I think people in separation, when they have to then live on less, are, are struggling hugely. Like they look at me like I, when I suggest the money they'll have every month, they look at me like I'm insane. Um, when really that's probably what they should have been living on to begin with. Like you need to be saving, you need to be providing for retirement. Like relying on your inheritance is not a retirement plan. Um, despite what I hear all the time. Or, or your partner's um, pension. I would imagine some people rely the, on. Well, yeah, that's my yeah. other favorite. My partner has a pension. I'm like, okay, yeah. what do you have? Well, I don't have right. it. Right. Or, or we've just been slowly withering away on our line of credit. That is so common. Like we've just kind of $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 a year on the line. But, you know, the housing market's going up so far. We'll just kind of re-put it into the house. No problem. And our kids are young. And when they go to, you know, when they get older, like there's always reasons. But the reality is you're just overspending. And that's what I see 
all the time. And that's something that in separation also creates a lot of conflict because you can't take the three trips a year or you can, but you don't have the same asset to rely on to keep borrowing from. So that's something I see where I'm, I really caution and honestly, millennials particularly, but it's kind of everybody, but I think, and like professionals, like lawyers being like, yeah, well, I'll make partner and then I'll make X. And it's like, that doesn't mean you learn good financial you didn't learn anything, right? You're just relying on more and more and more. You're so income heavy. And I think COVID is a perfect time to show like everyone's earning less. So if your financial plan is to keep earning a lot of income at times like this, that certainly isn't going to serve you and you have no backup plan. So those are kind of what I see that it, that I think. Yeah. Those are, that's a really good answer. And a few of those certainly resonated uh, with me or I've seen those before. To add a little positive spin, how would you suggest yeah, structuring? <laughs> like, no, love it, love it. We're, we're in a pandemic. Yeah, Let's I promise I'm a really positive person. <laughs> yeah. I know. Uh, it's funny, I, I did this. Gonna... <laughs> I did this strength assessment test, this like Gallup strength assessment. I made my whole team do it because I want to make sure like we work really well as a team. And we deal with grief, obviously, all day long. And my number one strength was positivity. And yet I'm hearing myself speak and I'm like, doom and gloom. Um, anyways, sorry. Uh, yes. What is, well, the that's why I want to give you, give you the follow-up, which is so, and that's a great summation of faux pas and various money mistakes. Um, but so how would you suggest, like, if you got to come in from the get-go, um, couples structure their finances for long-term success? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is I'm not a financial advisor, <laughs> so I can't right. answer right. it in a way other than to say, this is my, this is how I help couples have the conversation in the context of negotiating, for example, a prenup. So the first Beautiful. thing I always talk about is, you know, do you want to be jointly financially connected or not? Um, I see a lot mm-hmm. of couples being like, I want to be really separate financially, even though we may choose to be married. So the law might see that differently, but um, you know, we want to have our own account. We, you know, we put X amount in every month to cover joint expenses. We're going to save on our own. Um, we're going to spend on our own and anything that doesn't relate to us. And if you have children, the children is going to be our own expense. And either we contribute to that joint account kind of equally if our, or some kind of proportionate sharing. So I see a lot of that. Um, the interesting thing about that is sometimes people just fall into that without there being a, a conversation that that's how we're going to manage our finances. So I think you'll hear with me a big theme is like, talk about it, <laughs> you know? So yes. um, the other way a lot of people do is they join everything together, but then they don't talk about how they're going to spend their money. So now all of a sudden we have joint credit cards and joint accounts and someone's a spender and someone's not, which by the way, that's totally fine but then you might need to have a family budget, right? And be like, and so when we're actually negotiating a lot of prenups and we're talking about those kinds of things, we talk about budget a lot and what is your lifestyles and what can, are you okay with this being your kind of annual burn? Um, Are you okay with this being your savings plan? Have you talked to a financial advisor together about what that plan might be? Who is gonna manage the money? And then if there is only one person managing the money, which I think is okay, how is that other person going to be informed on a regular basis so that they're not just falling in the background that in 10 years, they have no idea what happened with their finances. So we have a lot of those conversations at the beginning. And I think if people are struggling to have them with their partner, like that is something to, to talk to a therapist about for sure. How do we have this conversation productively? You need to learn how to talk about money with your partner who is your economic partner. 
Yeah, I know some personal finance writers even suggest having a money date with your partner weekly where you check in. Um, and it just runs so counter to our culture to just like pool everything. Um, but the downside to not doing that, that is if you keep everything separate after the years go by, you one person has been a saver and one person has been a spender and you haven't even realized it, right? So while it freaks me out that my partner could see, you know, how much I spend at Sephora <laughs> or whatever, she's a very gender stereotyped <laughs> yeah, example, no, but, but you know what I mean? True. But it's like, you know, like maybe that should just all be out in the open because I could see how it could bite you back in the ass. But here's the other thing too. It's like a lot of also of it is, is like, I, so I spend way more than my husband, like way more. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, like, I just do. Uh, but I also feel like, I know, Pri, he's so good with money. He's like, we don't need that. I'm like, mm, we do. Purchase. <laughs> um, especially with online shopping, like, my thumb purchases it. It's scary. Um, so I feel like, you know, to your point, though, is like, at least if you have that conversation, then you don't feel bad that you're doing it. Because what the heck is the point of buying something if you hide it or feel guilty about it, first of all? And secondly, then all of a sudden, it's every time you do do it, it's going to be like, what, you know, oh, my God, you know, join us shopping again. You know, we don't want that dynamic in our relationship. And we're earners. We're earning money. We should have the right to spend it in a way that we feel is right. But if you choose to share your life with somebody, it's also they get a voice in it. Right. And you have to find common ground. Is my yeah, is my preach. is my thinking on it. Um, yes. Well, we're, just, we're a podcast. Yeah, you've hit on two of our big themes, which are one, we all need to learn how to talk about money for the sake of our relationships, for the sake of our families and, and for ourselves. And we're also very pro spending in a healthy, smart, loving, joyful way. Um, but since you sort of brought up the difference of your spending habits versus your husband's, um, and since you work with various couples, do you see a difference in the way um, from a gender perspective, the finances are handled? Um, and do you want to comment on that yeah. at all? Yeah. So I think um, it's really interesting. I so in my just personally, um, I'm really really more interested in the finances than my husband is. He's a bit better actually at like the investing side. Like he read, like he knows every piece of news. He's like, you know, we should be looking at like he's way better at that than me. What I'm a bit better at is here's the budget. Here's how we're going to live it. We got to make sure this is going in every month, the auto payments, right? We speak about money very regularly. I also own my own business. So the way I get paid isn't every month, right? He also is um, a contract, like he also doesn't have a, a T4 job. So we're always speaking about money in a really open way. And we're always connecting about how do we feel about it? right? How do we feel about what we're doing? And are we on the same page? And if we're not, how do we get to, again, I always call it into the same book as a starting point. Um, and so what I see though with a lot of couples is that one person takes over and there's just no sharing. And it's not necessarily a man or a woman. I'm going to be honest in my, in my personal life, I get the feeling more of my, uh, more of my friend couples and my social network. The man seems to be doing a little bit more of it. Um, but in my practice, I would say it, as millennials, um, it seems to be one person is doing it, not both. And then there's no, there's just no conversation about it, which I think I was highlighting. Um, 
And I do think that there's also sometimes the person who's the higher income earner actually isn't doing it, right? Their spouse is like paying the bills and stuff and doing the kind of regular finances, but doing none of the investing, right? So they'll do like kind of the day-to-day, pay the hydro bill, pay the mortgage, but then they have no idea that where the rest of the money is. And there's just, they have no idea. And I think certainly in the older generations, women for sure are not knowing what's going on at all. Again, all at all at all. And I, I am seeing a trend that that is changing. And I think that's really hopeful. And I think it's because women are starting to earn more, honestly, and also out earn their partner. Mm. Yay. <laughs> I yeah, know. that's sort of the classic, <laughs> the classic like 70s divorce story is, yeah, the the wife comes and wants a divorce, but she just has no idea how much money there is or where it is. And she ends up just kind of getting bamboozled or is too scared to leave the marriage right? Which could be abusive or could not be empowering her. So this is definitely a norm that has to change. And I think, yeah, I I also don't think, by the way, there's still tons of people we know that I think the interesting shift would be that I think it's now shameful not to know about your money. Like there's an element of shame Mm -hmm. because it is expected that we both, that everybody should know it. So when I have women clients, I have very few men clients that admit they don't know the money. That's what's the big difference. <laughs> like, they'll, like they'll be like, yeah, my wife pays the bills, but you know, I have a good friend. They have no idea, right? They have no idea. But they don't tell me that outright. Whereas a lot of women will come in, join it to your point, being like, I, I'm so ashamed, but I have no idea what my budget is. I have no idea what I spend. I have no idea what we have. I just, I, I have no idea. And there's this like profound level of shame and usually the partner's like, but I feel like I would have told you, I feel like I gave you so many opportunities, all the accounts that are in joint names, et cetera. And there's this like, yeah, I guess I just didn't, you know, I had my own obligations and responsibilities. And so one of the things I really do want to do is be like, it isn't shameful. And it's also never too late to learn. So like, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, I'm that person being like, I have no idea. Now's the time to learn about it right? Don't learn about it when things are rocky. Learn about it now. Um, And it's okay. Like, it's okay. There's tons of people that want to help. Yeah. And what I loved about all of your advice generally is that it's really clear that what's going to make a financially healthy couple starts with financially healthy individuals. So even if you're not married and you're single, but you hope to one day have a healthy relationship, like, yeah, now's the time. Like, get those ducks in order, right? It's going to reflect so much better on your future relationship. And I also think it's like, you know, I'm a big proponent that like not so in a relationship sense, and I speak in that sense, it's because it's the one in which I work. Um, But, you know, I I see a lot of um, higher value placed on kind of the higher income earner. And it's like, well, I earn more money, so I should be able to spend more, right? Like there's like this, this emphasis on um, there's like a lack of emphasis on kind of the emotional labor, um, the non earning money. And I think that kind of adds to the shame and so I think as an individual if you're someone who's like yeah well if someone earns more money than me so they should get to spend whatever they want but you're in a partnership with them we're already developing unhealthy tendencies you know because one day you're not going to feel that way or if you do at least talk about it um so my advice to everybody everybody I know is talk about money and talk about all the other things in your relationship but don't you know, if you want to live in kind of separate financial land, know that the law doesn't support you in that. So you're kind of sharing it anyway, first of all. But secondly, make that intentional so that 
you do feel like you have a plan together and that when you're going on a trip, it's not like I can't afford to go. Right. Like, is there right that you're you're thinking about what is our lifestyle? Where do we spend money and how are we going to make the even if we're not even if we're living financially separate, how are we going to make those goals happen together? Because ultimately you'll be happier together. And just one quick follow up. When you say the law doesn't support you if you want to live in separate financial land, which I, I love the phrase. Yeah. What you just mean for the non-lawyers in the crowd is that yeah. in the event of a breakdown of a relationship, the court will seek to enforce an equitable division of assets. Even Is that even if you both had independent legal advice and signed a prenup agreeing to the same? Like I've seen all these family law cases where, you know, it's usually the wife doesn't work and raises the family. Um, and then the court determines that even if there is a prenup, um, that she's entitled to, let's say, half of the value of the marital home and things like that. But could you just spell that out? Yeah. So um, in terms of durability of, yeah, so that's a really good question. When I refer to that, I actually mean that our legislation, so the Family Law Act, which actually for property only governs married people. It does not provide for unmarried people. So that's a first distinction. Everybody, I see so many people, and like I'm common law, it's the same. It is not the same. Legally, it is not the same. You do not have a legislative right to share in property. So if you're married, though, you do, right? So there's a presumption that the growth in assets over from your date of marriage to your date of separation will be shared. So if you're living, if you're married, you don't have a prenup and you're living separately, and you're like, well, I saved all this money during the marriage. Half is still your partner's, right? So that was kind of my first part. The second part in terms of durability of a, a prenup, which is I think what you're highlighting on, is prenups are a highly, highly sensitive um, agreement to do for many reasons. One is if you're going to bother doing it, you want to make sure you can rely on it. And what used to happen is that these are prenups that were just so unconscionable. They were like, you get nothing. And we've been together for 30 years and I've never worked and you have, we have three kids, but you get nothing if we step like that's just ridiculous. So nowadays we actually like I do a lot of this work and we actually meet with them. We have meetings about what their goals are for their relationship, for their contract. What do like talk about the money? What do you want here? Why are we sitting here? Um, a lot of people use the word like I want to protect my assets. I always kind of reframe that to provide a plan for your assets. Um, so it doesn't feel so much like everything is yours and something else is theirs and we're not doing any building together. So we really try to make sure that the agreement, if it needed to be relied on, would be in the realm of fair. If not, it's it's not worth doing at all. It won't be upheld. Does that answer that Amazing. question? Amazing, yes, that was very well done. Um, so we'll move on to our sort of final segment, which is our money wins for the week. And so this can be something where you had a purchase you feel really good about. Perhaps you've just saved a lot of money. Perhaps you've made an investment or sort of any money move that you feel good about. Uh, so Lex, do you, do you have one for us this week? Yeah, I do. So for me, it was buying my house. Um, I, you know, I, you gave me this question. I thought it was a great one because it's positive, and I think we all have money wins, all of us. Um, and for me, I bought my house when I started my own practice, which felt really counterintuitive. Like I literally went from making a Bay Street income to making no income or an extremely small amount of income, and then we bought the house. And at the time, I thought I was going bankrupt and would forever be financially dead to the world. Um, 
And we ended up renting out the house for a year until we could afford to live in it. And now it's in COVID, I'm realizing uh, I remain self-employed. It's a scary time to be self-employed. It's a scary time to not have reliable income on either of us. And my husband can't work right now in COVID because he's in film and film is shut down. So here we are. And I look at this house and luckily we haven't had to borrow against it, but I feel very lucky that it's done so well, that it is such a form of security during times of uncertainty. So I do feel like our house is my money win, especially right now. Nice. House is a huge money win. Damn. Well done. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also it's funny. I had an amazing person advise me. So we bought this house. I literally, we both fell on the floor and cried. And I was like, you got to get out (laughs) of this. We can't afford it. And it's interesting because a really, um, a really interesting person in my world was like, you know what, this will be the best thing you ever do. But if you can't afford it now, rent it and stay in your like $1,500 a month, which eight years ago was, you know, felt expensive, especially with not a lot of income, which I now know is pretty much a steal, but stay there and make money on your house and just go in when you're ready. And honestly, for anybody that's like, that was the best advice I've ever gotten because I did the house. We made a thousand dollars a month on the house. So I basically could live for free, which allowed me to start my own practice and do it without feeling totally dead to the world. And here we are. So it's like, I do think the, the, the things that make you totally frightened end up being, hopefully end up being pretty good. But anyway, or maybe that's just my experience. Oh, no, that's a great one, Lex. And I've been to that house. It's very nice. <laughs> it's a great event. What, 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 area, what area is it in? <laughs> so, uh, I live just north of Roncesville. It's in the Junction Triangle, kind of like um, Dundas West and Bloor area. Oh, so nice. Which is Except nice. Except I just heard that they're going to shut down High Park. I'm like, you can't shut down all of High Park. They apparently this. already <laughs> did. Yeah, they apparently oh, already no. did. Yeah, like, droves of people are there. So I'm like, great oh, job, no. city of Toronto. But my office is in Roncesvalles, so it's nice. I'm a 10-minute walk to work, so it's all oh, very nice. Very, very good. Beautiful. Um, but, yeah, what are your money wins? Can I ask that? <laughs> yeah, okay, of course. So mine, mine, mine is more of a tip this week. So I was on the horn. as I'm, I'm on the phone so much these days. It's like middle school oh. where you can just, like, call people. So I was on the phone with a mutual <laughs> close friend of uh, Les and I and friend of the pod who shall remain nameless to protect her security um and it just brought (laughs) home a sort of important personal finance lesson so she is very financially savvy saves 50 to 60 percent of her income um but she invests all of it and she didn't have an emergency fund because she was just like i'm a lawyer i'm employable on the market um i work in a field where i'm always going to be able to get a job and so why would i park money in a savings account when i can be earning mm. you know 6 6 to 8% interest well she had started uh, or signed on to start a new job right around now at a new law firm um and she had given her notice to her previous job and then lo and behold pandemic hits and her start date got pit- pushed back So she was facing a gap in income and had no emergency fund. All of her money was tied up in the market, which is down now. So she didn't want to have to start selling off her investments. And it was just a big lesson. So she sorted it out. She negotiated with her current employer that she can stay on for a little while um, because this new firm can't onboard her because of the pandemic. 
Um, and it's just a lesson that even though it's not the sexiest thing in the world and you're not going to get crazy <laughs> returns, you need an emergency fund. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, a global pandemic could hit and you could have a gap in income. So you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're selling off losses, which is the only time you really realize a loss is when you have to mm-hmm. sell off your stocks. Um, so for me, that was like, oh, damn, I'm going to beef up my emergency fund. And I think yeah. right now is a good time. Like generally people recommend three to four months of expenses as an emergency fund. Um, but I I think now is a good time to think about maybe beefing it up to six months um, just because there but for the grace of God go I. That's my money, money win, money tip this week. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> great well, tip too. Be, because just to borrow from that, like divorce is the same thing, right? People come to me and they're like, "How am I supposed to pay for for all of this? And how am I supposed to pay to do it well?" And what I always say to people is that, like, the biggest, you know, you're restructuring your family. The most important people, everything that you've worked for and owned, is going to be restructured. And you need to pay for a process that's going to do it properly. And so many people don't even have a month saved up, right? So I always Mm -hmm. say if you have an emergency fund of six months, but then you need to leave or or separate, at least you have some of that money that you can go, you know what, I'm going to invest in my family to make sure this is that that I'm going to do this properly, rather than like meet with my ex-partner, try to do it on the back of the napkin, try to get as legal, as little legal advice as possible and realize, I haven't done this well at all. And I've created way more conflict than I needed to, which is what I see all the time. People trying to do it by themselves and then need lawyers and we're untangling. And so I think that emergency fund is so important for so many life in- instances. What if someone passes away and they don't have insurance, et cetera? Yeah. I think that's a great tip. Yes. Lex, uh, for sure. Emergency fund was my money win on the episode yes. with Anjali and with another episode we'll be launching with Elki. We're talking about what a fuel pathway. So you're touching a lot of our points. I definitely have been beefing up my emergency account and that's been actually easier right now because I'm spending less, but I did mm. uh, purchase an item this week that I want to talk about. Um, it's from a <laughs> Toronto based designer, Hillary McMillan. I bought a beautiful white trench coat from her online oh. And why I love this brand is she is a Canadian contemporary cruelty-free size-inclusive women's wear brand. So it goes up to 4X, everything. She makes like snake skin, but no no animals were harmed in the making of this. And a really cool thing, (laughs) (laughs) um, a really cool thing she's doing right now, if you go to the website, is she is, you can download a kit that gives you patterned fabric and where to drop off so you can make masks for... So they wouldn't be medical grade, but they'd sort of be for frontline workers and people like that who perhaps don't have access to masks but need them. And I believe she personally um, is making a ton because she's a clothing manufacturer, you know, designer. Um, So that felt like a really good win. But this trench coat is also beautiful, Joanna. You will love it. It's white and long. And I can't wait for when I actually get to go back into an office. Uh, to just look very chic in this very. I'm just picturing Yeah, I'm picturing less on the first day post lockdown, just walking out to Young and Blue in her white trench, wearing stilettos, looking like a boss a bitch. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> and your Tesla. <laughs> Thank the you, ladies. Yes, well, fun- very on brand. It was yeah. very. And Alex, you would love this too because she designs for like women with real curves. Like, does a really good hourglass kind of silhouette so love I'm, it I'm loving you gotta it right love now. a good yeah. trench coat it's also like I think your point too has if we're not spending as much it's a good point 
you know, yeah. like this is forcing us all to kind of but hunker down, our, which is which is good for money saving. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I think this is a perfect time to sign off. Thanks again, Lex, and sending love and dividends. Love and dividends. Thank, thank you, you so for much. Having me. See you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and Dividends podcast. If you got value from this podcast, please share it with another woman who could benefit from the information that we shared. And please consider rating us and leaving us a review on iTunes. It really helps with new podcasts. If you have questions about finances and investing, have suggestions for future topics or guests, please let us know. You can shoot us a DM on Instagram, love and dividends, or you can send us an email at hello at loveanddividends.com. With love and dividends.